0: today on operant innovations we are joined by dr veronica howard to talk about open educational resources in behavior analysis so dr howard i know you pretty well but would you mind telling all of our listeners a little bit about yourself
1: yes absolutely thank you for having me Uh, i'm veronica howard i use they them pronouns i am very happy to, to have all this modern technology because I am joining you from the Dena'ina El Nena, the ancestral unceded homelands, of the Dena'ina Athabascan people who've stewarded this beautiful land known as Anchorage, Alaska for thousands of years. And I'm privileged to work from Stanton, Virginia at Mary Baldwin University. It's located, the physical university is located on the ancestral homelands of the Monacan and Manahoic tribes. But I also get through that experience of teaching in a fully online graduate program, I serve and teach students from around the world. So I'm very excited to be with you here today, and I hope that people understand that I'm so excited, especially because we have a previous relationship as teacher and student and co-colleagues.
0: We do. It's amazing. It's kind of fun to see looking back on you know where we were for our listeners, Dr. Veronica Howard. I'm pretty sure you've heard me talk about them a thousand times on this podcast, which I apologize for, but they were my thesis advisor in undergrad. And they are much of the reason that I came into behavior analysis and really developed this not only appreciation, but I guess love of open educational resources. And that's kind of why we're here today is we want to talk about a little bit more what they are. We get a lot of questions, especially me. I have stuck to it since undergrad of making sure that the Creative Commons license is on everything everything, everything. And it's quite a big topic for me since we bring it up. So let's kind of get into it. And Dr. Howard has a lot of experience in this area and I think could offer us a cool perspective. So would you mind just kind of talking us through what exactly are open educational resources? What do we mean when we say that?
1: Absolutely. Well, I'm going to give you the most convoluted answer possible, right? Love that. (laughs) Because it's a difficult thing to nail down from the perspective. For instance, imagine that you're trying to describe what behavior analysis is. And each person that you talk to, they're going to have a sort of related definition, but it's not going to be identical in every way. So, for instance, if you talk to Somebody who does the experimental analysis of behavior, they're going to approach it differently than someone who is steeped in radical behaviorism and philosophy, different from what maybe a clinician would do, and certainly different than, say, a person might have from my perspective. I usually bring it up as like this contextual science that uh, helps support clients and, and promote their best growth possible. So it depends a little bit on who you ask. The definition will vary significantly we also have to recognize that when we're talking about open whether it's educational resources open education open etc that it's part of this set of nebulously related terms around open essentially the heart and essence of open is breaking down barriers increasing access and dissemination so, you might see open, for instance, used in that way that sometimes things will be, quote, open access. And a lot of our journal articles in the field are actually open access. You know, shout out to folks like uh, Megan Kirby and her uh, co authors who recently published Humble Behaviorism Redux. That's released under an open license. They even published a kind of correction to their article so that they could really highlight the fact that that is available and openly licensed. But before that, it was open access because you could just get to it free. There was no paywall. There were no licensing restrictions. You didn't have to pay anything to get to it. A really good example of something in our field that's open access, but not openly licensed might be like Ryan O's The Daily B.A., Though the copyright for that, the intellectual property rights, stays with Ryan. But the materials are available for open access anyone can get on YouTube to use them. Another term that comes up often is like open source. And this is more like software, where that base code is available for anyone to download and use and edit and build on. So the operating system Unix, for instance, is open source software. And sometimes what will happen with that is you can take something that was open source and it becomes commercial, but open source is sort of loosely related to open educational resources. I'll tell you why in a minute. We also have some exciting new research in our field about open science, and that's really about the transparency of methodology and the transparency of data sets, which is very exciting from a scientific perspective because it really hits on at least from my perspective, anyway, one of those core seven dimensions of ABA, the technological description, like not only are we being incredibly clear and parsimonious and transparent about exactly what we're doing, but now with open science, we can be super transparent in what we found. And it creates all these new opportunities for creation, analysis, publication, et cetera, like to take your science and make it open, it's not just like doing a meta-analysis where you're reading articles and seeing what folks were coming up with. You could actually compare core data sets and see if, does the article match the the conclusions uh, that the author drew? Do, Do those match the data that they collected? Were there, is there any evidence of any kind of systemic bias? Is there something that was omitted that could be relevant? You know, things of that sort. So that's open science. When we get down into open educational resources, which is, I think, what we're talking about today, but we might uh, segue into something closely related. When we talk about the resources themselves, it's really just a set of materials that are released under a license that permits something that are called the five R's, R like Romeo. Uh, and that's the ability to retain the material. So like if you download a copy, you can keep it forever. Nobody has a problem with that. You can reuse those materials in any way you see fit. The exciting part is you can revise the material. And this is particularly helpful if you find something that is incredibly helpful, but there's like a little error with it, right? Maybe there's a typo or maybe they present a concept that's, uh, it's close, but not perfect. And I find that in a lot of like intro psychology textbooks, the way that they talk about reinforcement, it's so close to being like functionally correct, but it really but just still barely. builds. I know. And and you can tell that the person who's writing it, like they're super knowledgeable. They mean really well, but it's hard as our, in our culture to get to that functional definition, mm-hmm. especially when you're trying to communicate with someone who may not share that. But if the resource is openly licensed, then I can actually edit that paragraph and make it functionally accurate and then use it in lots of different ways. So that's just revise, editing it. Remixing it is combining it with other stuff. So maybe I have an open chapter from over here and a picture from over there and a video that I want to pop into, create a resource for my students and I can do that. And then finally redistributing right? Redistributing is pretty useful because it means I can share it with other people. If I'm giving credit, if I'm citing and honoring where I'm getting those materials from. So those five R's are retain, reuse, revise, remix, and redistribute. Now, when we talk about copyright law, when we talk about all of this little, I just love it so much. When we talk about that, it's worth noting that Educators have some rights, especially under... Uh, different laws for online education, where maybe you can share some resources with your class uh, in a password protected location uh, for the purposes of education. Or maybe you can um, take a gamble and make a fair use argument that you're going to use something that's protected by copyright, but you're only going to use like a small portion of it. You're not going to compete with the market value of it. And you're not going to like violate the essence of it, you know, like Dumbledore died on page three, whatever. Um, and so as a result, sorry, spoilers. Um, as a result, you might be able to make a fair use argument for why you give students access to some, dare I say, bootleg commercial resources, but open educational resources, you do away with all of that, like law, rigmarole, you do away with all of that headache around access and who has the password and are they getting into the place correctly? And it's also really helpful because you're no longer sort of bound to any particular format or hosting location. So open educational resources are are so useful from the perspective of dissemination and leveraging and creativity and being able to generate new timely resources. They're really valuable. And I also think we shouldn't go too far here without talking about open education as a larger movement, which is just when we talk about education being more open, we're talking about teaching in a way with resources and tools and our practices, right? Those things around our pedagogy that are independent of legal issues, financial barriers, technical barriers that Folks can use and share and adapt to any of the different environments where they find themselves. So open education as a practice really maximizes all of these different technologies that we have to make education affordable, accessible, meaning from the access perspective, not from a a, uh, supporting folks who might need different kinds of access and really effective. We can teach in different ways when we're not locked behind paywalls.
0: I actually love that you bring that up so much as someone who has a doctorate and as someone who is very desperately trying. If we know one thing, we know that college is unfortunately expensive And it is so difficult to get access to this education, especially for young behavior analysts. That's a question that we get a lot when we're interacting with people who haven't gotten to grad school yet. They'll just say, where can I get these resources? I don't understand these topics. I can't afford a $200 textbook. And it's valid. And I think that's where, when we bring in open educational resources or OERs, we're very much addressing that point of accessibility to these things and to these ideas, because right now there is just such a huge financial barrier for so many students. And unfortunately, it definitely impacts more marginalized communities. And I think that is just so unfair. And in behavior analysis, we have yet to address that. So do you think you could talk a little bit about how using making open educational resources
1: could help in that area? Absolutely. Can I tell you a little story, like a really timely thing that just happened that I think might kind of capture some of what we're talking about?
0: Absolutely. And for our listeners, anytime Dr. Howard says, can I tell you a story? Always say yes. It's never, never let that be no. Always say yes, because it's always a good story. So now that we have that out there for future listeners, say yes to the stories. I will let Dr. Howard continue.
1: Yeah, no, I, you're very kind. You're very kind to share that, that secret. Um, okay, so let's talk about cost, right? Like that is the most obvious reason why we should start here. And And I'll be frank, like in 2015, when I first learned about open educational resources, I was like, yes, yes, please. Because as a first-generation college student, I struggled. I struggled through undergraduate where I would regularly work two, sometimes three jobs and take out student loans in order to support myself and go to school. In grad school, I I struggled significantly, again, continuing that two-job vibe, which made it very difficult to be present and to perform to my best ability. But if you come from a group that is historically excluded or marginalized, those are sometimes the prices that you end up having to pay for the cost of admission into higher education. So cost on a very simple level is where a lot of folks start. There's a lot of different ways that you can get around the cost of higher education, right? You might choose a program that has a really good reputation and it's got low tuition, you know, not to plug the program where I am, but we work super, super hard to keep tuition low because we know that every dollar we charge means more time that students can't spend focusing on their, their learning and their research and their creativity around our field. Cost also represents, like, we could try other things like using primary sources. When I use uh, Beowulf and Risley 1968, there's no paywall around that anymore. Like, that is open access. The copyright is still held by the publisher, but it's free for students to access. We might also do things like using library resources. And this is the one where I get extra spicy because libraries are amazing. Shout out to librarians. If you don't know a librarian, stop everything. Go go make a librarian friend. They are going to be your best friend in the whole world. And they are so invested in this idea uh, that education is for everybody. Knowledge is for everybody. So you can imagine how frustrating it was that in late August, Wiley publishers and we know Wiley because they publish some of our best books. Wiley publishers abruptly changed the number of titles and ebooks that were available in various university ebook collections. And I'm going to pop a link so hopefully we can share this with folks. And among those titles was William Baum's uh, behaviorism book, right? So <laughs> The, the point I'm getting at here is, let's imagine for a moment that you were a faculty member who had assigned uh, this bomb behaviorism textbook, which, by the way, this bomb book is amazing. And if you want to learn more about the foundations and the philosophy around radical behaviorism, definitely check it out. Understanding Behaviorism, Behavior, Culture, and Evolution is a Wiley book. And it was part of this collection. And right at the end of August, Wiley pulled that from their free to access resources if you had that subscription through your library. So then imagine for a second, you're a faculty member and you're teaching those philosophical foundations of our course and you've made that decision that what you wanna do is make this book available for your students for free. And then suddenly your students are telling you, uh, I can't get that through the library. So now students who we have legally told, you don't have to purchase this book or scrambling to purchase the book, that means we're in violation of federal law because we weren't telling students at the point of registration everything they needed to be successful. That means if you're the instructor, you're probably because you don't know how you're going to get students access to that book. Not every student is going to tell you that they're having trouble accessing that book. Some are going to try to go stiff upper lip, figure it out, whatever. So the thing that I never have to worry about from open educational resources, from that openly licensed material perspective, I never have to have the rug pulled out from under me. I never have to worry about, is there a shipping delay for my students? Is the book still available in the format that I think it's going to be available? It's this kind of security from an instructor perspective that is invaluable. But let's just think about like what I just said in terms of holy moly, access is gone, right? When you're using open educational resources, you get all of these other benefits. You get resources that everyone can access and not just access but access in the way that they need. So let's imagine you've got a textbook, right? I'm a behavior analyst of a certain age, so I've got oh if you're listening that was me having a hernia lifting up my physical bound copy of Cooper Heron and Heward. <laughs> and let's imagine that I pony up the the $130 to purchase this which by the way if you're pursuing certification could be a good idea. Mm-hmm. But this is a beefy tome, right? This is a 10-pound book. And I'm going to get some sort of like uh, age-related wear and tear on my joints, schlepping this all around. If I'm using an open educational resource, it can be bound. It can be printed. You could print it out if you wanted to. Or you just pull up the thing on your phone. It's got a variety of different formats. When I teach with open educational resources, if I've got a person who, for instance, lives out in Chignik Lagoon, right, which is a part of Alaska along the Aleutian chain way out there, they may not be able to access my resources online. And so something that, you know, if you're living in Miami with great uh, reservation, because some of my students currently can't access the internet, in Miami, you have a much better possibility of accessing those resources online than if you live out in Chignik Lagoon. But with open educational resources, I could download everything, throw it on a thumb drive and send it to you. So there's a lot of barriers that open can break down. And it's more than just cost. It's more than just barriers. It's what other ancillary benefits are we providing? How are open resources a kind of pivotal response that facilitate all of these other things to happen. So for instance, um, with my courses, I invite students to create resources with me, right? Create the resource that you wish you had. So if you're reading you know, the white book and they're describing something, but you're reading it and you've read it five times and you're like, I, d- I don't understand any of that. And I know that that's English, but it doesn't feel like English. So how can you explain it Instead. Right. And being able to create the resources you wish you had and then give them to others means that now we have more voices and we have voices that might be more representative of who is actually in our field. One of my favorite examples of this is some of my former students who are now in a different grad program, not behavior analysis, but closely related, recently shared that in their program, they're not getting the kinds of demonstrations of the skills they need to perform. And it's really disheartening. It's really frustrating to know that you have to learn a skill, but not be able to see how to do that skill. And so rather than you know wring their hands and not know what they're doing, they've actually started as a group working together to create video models of those resources to share them with other people. And we're going to see examples of, you know, this particular professional skill performed by, you know, a, a person who is very transparent about their queerness and a person who is clearly indigenous and a non-traditional student. And you're going to see all of these wonderful different examples of diverse creators and diverse professionals in ways that you might not otherwise.
0: And I love that so much. I think it's so important, especially for students now to have that representation in our resources. You know, that's a lot of the reason why we as students started our own student podcast at ABA Tech was we just kept hearing a lot from professionals that have been in the field. And we just noticed along the way, we were like, wow, you know, I appreciate their perspective, but you don't know how it is now. So that's why we got out and we started talking about it and saying, hey, what is it like to be a grad student today with these (laughs) economic things we have going on with, everything that we have in our particular program. How did we get here? Talking about that is so important. And I really do think that's where, like you said, open educational resources helps because you're actually hearing from the people that are actively in the field. And it is so, so important instead of, you know, these professionals that although they are incredible and have offered so much to us, haven't seen this side of it in a minute. So it's really, really Mm. helpful to hear from it. (laughs)
1: Yeah, well, definitely. And and I want to like shout out to one particular creator who has this wonderful definition of what open education kind of entails. So would you permit me kind of a long quote? Absolutely. So this is from Lambert's 2018 uh, piece on why open is important from kind of a social justice perspective. Lambert says, quote, open education is the development of free digitally enabled learning materials and experiences primarily by and for the benefit and empowerment of non-privileged learners who may be underrepresented in education systems or marginalized in their global context, end quote. But even if you're not into this perspective of social justice, this idea of representation matters, this idea that Diversity is important for inclusion and making it clear that everyone belongs here. Everyone belongs in behavior analysis. Even if you're not on board for that, if you're a behavior analyst, you cannot argue with the science that more samples matters. More samples, more trials, more exposure to things facilitates generalization. So you should care about this from the perspective that the more resources we have, the better able we're going to be to foster generalization of skills, to be able to then further discriminate good examples from examples that could use a little work.
0: And I really like that. And I think that kind of leads us into, I know we mentioned it previously, but the great Cooper book kind of has something to say about that where they start talking about like accountability and public access Mm -hmm. What do you think on that end? How do OERs fit within that?
1: Well, and this is what Cooper, Heron, and Heward, they bring this up in that first chapter where they're talking about the seven dimensions, what makes ABA ABA. They also bring out some other characteristics of ABA. So I'm pulling from Cooper, Heron, and Heward, the third edition, uh, Applied Behavior Analysis is page 18, and they give us all these other characteristics of ABA. I would actually argue that many of these characteristics, like accountable, that we are committed to focusing on understanding these environmental variables, that we want to make sure that we're we're really being very clear and that we're making the changes that we want to make. public. everything about ABA is visible and public, et cetera, doable, empowering, optimistic. All of these characteristics of behavior analysis are, so intimately related to the openness of our learning and our teaching that more open educational resources in our field could help us really walk the walk on these characteristics. They would help make it so that you don't necessarily have to invest the resources to understand what we're about right? You don't have to drink the Kool-Aid and study with us for three or four years to be let into the secret club of behavior analysis. Because
0: it really can feel that way sometimes, especially from the outside looking in, like it is a secret, you know, because accessing all of these academic texts is difficult. And even from another perspective, they're hard to digest. So understanding it takes a whole education in and of itself. And that's where, again, we come back to open educational resources, support that, you know, it's not necessarily entirely meant to take over academia entirely, but it's helpful for us as behavior analysts. We have a responsibility to disseminate our science. Our science is meant to better the world. And we do that by disseminating it in the right way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and And I'm reminded of what you mentioned before, which was that so many people are asking about and clamoring for these because the voices that we currently have in the field are refined and clear. Well, they're refined and parsimonious in their delivery of content related to the underlying foundational science of behavior analysis yet. (laughs) We're sort of ignoring that kind of selectionism Mm -hmm. that operates on our field. So let's imagine for a moment that you become the author of a best-selling textbook, right? That textbook sells well enough that it goes into a second edition. What part of your learning history accounts for that book and the way that book is written and so on and so forth? So we find that Everything from the cost to the language that we use to how we assess to our learning environments, et cetera, are selecting for a very particular kind of verbal repertoire as it relates to our field. And if you don't talk that talk, you never walk that walk. You go to another field where the language is more self-satisfying and you rarely, rarely publish within behavior analysis, and I love which that. is a shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because behaviorism is everywhere. Behaviorism is universal, but the way that we talk about it is so limiting and the way that we present it and how you get access to it is so limited that you're really not getting this picture of everything that it could be.
0: And I love that because I actually, it reminds me of a very brief story I can tell about recently I was working with an undergraduate student that just took their very first course in behavior analysis and you know, we're going to this big conference and I'd sat down with them and was like, Okay, what are you worried about? Let's talk about it. You know, let's get all this out so you feel better. And their immediate response was I don't understand any of these terms. I don't get it. I don't speak the language. I don't think I can use this in a sentence. And they just expressed how frustrated they felt. And I had to sit down and be like, it's okay. Because in behavior analysis, we're teaching you an entirely new language and we can't expect you to fully understand and speak it fluently without proper instruction and training. Most, especially when that instruction isn't easy for you to access And so that was a huge discussion we had where I had to sit down. It's like, okay, let's go through all the basics. We're gonna do this together and make this make sense somehow.
1: Yeah, well, I'm gonna gonna probe back gently on that with two (laughs) questions. Like imagine for a moment that the instructor or the mentor in this case you didn't ask that question or didn't think to ask that question because any variety of reasons they're busy or maybe they never felt uncomfortable or what have you. Now you've got an organism in a kind of dicey situation of this is really challenging and I don't know if I really fit here and I'm not contacting a lot of reinforcement and I feel really awkward and and by virtue of ratio strain, like I'm going to see myself out. Yes. We could have lost like the next Skinner. Mm -hmm. We could have lost somebody really important to the future of the field simply because of how we talk about our science mm-hmm. and whether we talk about our science in relation to ourselves. And I'm also going to push back really gently on this idea that we don't expect people to use our language. In fact, I'm going to rephrase that question in a way that you might recognize from being a student. Don't we expect people <laughs> so for those of you that know
0: that voice lives with us always as Dr. Howard <laughs> students, for the rest of you, I'm so sorry. We'll throw our trigger warning out there. It's okay, you're out of class. You're fine, I promise. <laughs> but we do, and it's such a problem. It's such a problem, especially for new students. And it's hard, mm-hmm. I get it. I remember first contacting this and I'm like, I'm sorry, that's not what reinforcement means. Like, what do you mean? This yeah. punishment just means I'm yelling at someone, right? And it's, it's no, that's not the expectation is we tend to talk more of function right? And that is so hard for many, many students to grasp originally. But once you've been in the field for so long, it kind of becomes second nature. And we forget that the longer that we're in it. So I love that you point that out, because I feel like more people need to recognize that this isn't easy for everyone.
1: And that's okay, too. And I want to, like, I just want to hit on that. I want to just for everyone who's listening, remember, this is not easy. Right. Mm -hmm. What we're asking of learners is new language, new practices, a rich depth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy. And we need to exercise just a little bit of grace with ourselves and each other. Mm -hmm. The number of posts that I have seen in various venues about how awful all the behavior analysts are today and how dare they become certified only knowing this and this and that. You know, it's a process like getting to where you're going to go it's tough it's hard work but it is a process mm-hmm. and we need to make it more reinforcing and or reduce those barriers to performance or else we're not going to get people there and that's going to reflect on our field
0: it absolutely is because i think we often forget that our field is still a system. So it's still subject to those same disconnects, which if you haven't taken a systems class before, what we're basically saying is just what Dr. Howard just said, there's a barrier and there's a problem that is preventing us from getting the responses that we need. And sometimes it's not a performer issue. It's a much bigger system issue. So it's not just you, right? This is an everyone problem. I'm going to hop into the misconceptions of OERs because I would love to hear you talk about this.
1: Well, you know, uh, and there's so many wonderful topics that you've put in here that it even invites a, the potential for a follow-up conversation. I uh, would love and that. And I'd be, I'd be so happy to come back, especially if anyone were interested. So let me, let me drop a word here. It's a trigger warning for everybody who's listening. Rigor, rigor, in is is treated. In a way that it has become for me this kind of four-letter word, right? And rigor and all of that loaded language around it, I think, is is the base of many of these misconceptions about resources. Mm-hmm. We believe things like, "Well, if you don't have to pay for it, if it's free, you're getting what you pay for." Mm. And this is me being kind of a, a little, <laughs> a little jerkish, right? When I say that, I have a little like head nod that you can't see on the podcast. But we also say the same thing about volunteers, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're volunteers, you're getting what you pay for. And my research in the past has shown, actually you get a heck of a lot from a highly motivated volunteer. So just because a resource is free to access or openly licensed does not in fact indicate the quality of the resource right? There are so many wonderful publishing houses and authors and content creators who publish in the open. I'm just going to drop like a couple few names like Dr. Ryan Sane and uh, Brad Bishop who do Sitecore. They've been in the open game for like a decade or more. And they're making all of their content that is technologically accurate, freely available. Or think about the dozens of openly available, open access podcasts. Like, would you say podcasts like this are of inferior quality compared to something else? Probably not. And I recognize the selection bias because if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> you probably are invested in it. Like it's hard for us to say it's a terrible podcast. Don't come. like. It's... Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, 45 minutes in, uh, this is a terrible podcast.
0: We've decided but... now we don't like it. <laughs>
1: right. But then we have to kind of come back to, well, where does this perception, where does this belief come from? And some of it comes from predatory publishing. So if you have those predatory open publishing places where they're like, just submit anything, we'll publish it, pay us $250. That pay for play publishing has cast this kind of associative, aversive quality on open educational resources, because those articles are of dubious quality and for a variety of reasons we've also seen that articles published in the field can be of dubious quality for a variety of reasons, neither here nor there. I'm just saying as a Venn diagram, they're not perfect circles.
0: And I really like that you bring that up because I have heard more times that I can count when I talk about open educational resources. The first thing that gets brought up is Wikipedia is we are told throughout our career, don't look at Wikipedia, don't look at Wikipedia. So How is it different? Why, what are we talking about here? Because I know that's something that people tend to shy away from because people are able to edit and they're like, well, there's misinformation. So in our field, how should we combat that? And can we?
1: Well, actually, I love that you bring up Wikipedia because that is a perfect example of where open matters. Mm -hmm. So in our field, uh, I'm going to mess up the last name, but I want to give credit here where I can, Josh Pritchard. Uh, was heavily involved in the refinement of content around behavior analysis on Wikipedia. And so like if you went there 15, 20 years ago, yeah, the, the content was probably dicey at best. But when you come in there now, you see that it was a lot of it was written by experts in our field. Mm-hmm. There is a person who moderates, who um, sort of serves as an editor, For that content, in order for additional revisions to be made, they have to be approved through that content matter expert. So it's an iterative process. And that's managed to very effectively iterate towards a more openness in a way that is technologically accurate. So that's a perfect example. Also, the idea that don't use Wikipedia is phenomenally outmoded, right? Because I go to Wikipedia all the time. Maybe that's a reflection on my character as (laughs) as as a specialist. But... It's a wonderful place to start to look for sources. You're not going and citing Wikipedia. You're saying, okay, here's what I can find in Wikipedia. Let's check those sources. And then we can start going down the rabbit hole of primary sources. It's a source, Mm -hmm. not the source. So I would say that the Wikipedia argument is strong. Don't use a single source as your only place that you go for information, Subtext the white book. Uh, (laughs) Don't use only a single set of voices as the thing that's going to determine what you consider to be big T truth. Because it's going to be flawed. Every resource is going to be flawed in one way or another. And it's only through a kind of critical analysis and iterative refinement of that knowledge, just like our Wikipedia content, that you get towards something that is accurate and useful, socially valid with fewer barriers.
0: And I love that. And I think that's something that more people need to know, right, is you can find flaws in anything and OERs is one of them, but it is particularly attacked. And I'm so glad you were able to meet with me today and talk more on this. I know that we are gonna have so much more to talk about, but first off, thank you, Dr. Howard, for offering your time to talk to students about this. Um, It's greatly appreciated. We, We need more out there, especially in our field.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And it's especially a pleasure to be of service to students in the field.
0: And that's perfect. And next time on Operant Innovations, please join us because we're going to be talking a little bit more about this because needless to say, there's going to be a lot more. So thank you all so much for listening and we will see you next time.